Good morning. It's good to see everybody and those who are watching by the web, wherever you are around the world. I'm glad you're here. I'm excited about this morning. And the hardest thing, I had trouble sleeping because of why I was excited, what, was, what the Holy Spirit wanted to say. Anytime we come together, I believe and ask for that there will be a deposit put within our hearts, line upon line, precept upon precept, from glory to glory. All of those things, meaning the fact is when we come together, it's not just to hear something, but it's the Holy Spirit is investing in, inside of us. So I think it's, it's interesting to know how to receive from the Lord, not just to hear a word that inspires us because inspiration only lasts till you get to the door. And then here, then a phone rings, something happens and distraction, life takes over. But when there's a transformation, it happens from the inside out. And many times we're, we find ourselves being changed. We don't even realize we are because the very moment you say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I ask you to confess my sins before you, come into my life. At that moment, something starts happening in the same way that a birth takes place and a baby is from, from conception to birth and everything starts growing. So there's times when the Holy Spirit's doing things inside of us that we're not even aware of because it tells us even in Psalm 16 that while we're asleep, even the Spirit of the Lord is communicating, downloading, if you will, upgrading, if you will, <clears throat> into our spirit. When we receive him as Lord and Savior, he never stops working. We can kind of push him away. We can go in another direction. We can be distracted with things. But he never stops going and pursuing after us. And I say that for I believe this morning is one of those depository times to where that the Holy Spirit's putting something inside of us that is in preparation for the days ahead. And for us to understand that, that there's something moving inside of us excites me to realize that, that God continually works. If you look to Psalms 105, and it's a story concerning Joseph, and after Joseph has the dreams, and the psalmist recording about him, and it says that the word of the Lord continued, or kept working, if you will, in Joseph until the time that it was fulfilled. It was a continuation from the time that he went through, his brother sold him into slavery. It looked like things were totally against him. And yet God was setting him up for something big. If we don't understand the moving and how God works, we, we see the, whatever's happening to us as our world, and this is the way life is, and yet God could be setting us up for something major. I began this series with the idea that it was the Lord who hardened the heart of Pharaoh in order to push out the Hebrews and get them ready to leave. So I think there's a hardening of the hearts of, of certain leaders around the world. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work. The Bible tells us so. There is the working of the spirit of God in life, although that God doesn't God doesn't do this to us, but he certainly uses the, the spirit of the world and people submitting to it to set us up for something big. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, if we don't understand what the Holy Spirit's doing, we will look at everything happening around us, and it will be a doomsday event, and we begin to get so depressed, so oppressed, to the point as we're saying, what's the use of living? You may have felt that way. I'm praying, 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 and I haven't seen any result. It just keeps going from bad to worse. And there's people plenty out there tell you it's going to get worse before it gets better. 
that may happen, but why, wanted, why do I want to tell people that? It's like telling the doctor telling you, you know, there's, there's a 50-50% you're going to die. I don't know which side of that you're going to happen on. And 50% of people died that I've operated on, so hey. But Jesus said, in this world you will have good times, hyping it up and all the time around. In this world you will have tribulation, but the next part is good. But cheer up. Because if you understand that we're getting closer to birth pangs, getting closer to pushing things towards the kingdom of God, then you cheer up. So we're not just looking and saying, I want, you know, right now and, and all this happening. But if I see what he's doing, then I recognize he's positioning us for the biggest bang to ever happen. And that is we win. The glory of the Lord will be seen in the skies. Jesus will come back, touch down on Mount of Olives, split that place wide open. And he's going to come forth and show his glory once again in a mighty way. Said all that to say... This is the fourth series. I'll then finish up with the clash of two kingdoms. Now, Matthew, the 24th chapter, talks about in the last days and gives various signs and many signs there, birth pains and so on. You'll hear wars and rumors of war, but the end is not yet. And I'm not here to prognosticate what that is. I'm not interested in trying to figure out all of that. I'm just going to be ready every day and love him with all of my heart, mind, and strength. And not saying, well, he's getting closer. I better warm the old kettle up here and say, Hallelujah. I need to get more fervent because the love for him, not because he's coming back, because I love him whether he comes back or not, although I know he is. But he goes on to say, and kingdom shall rise against kingdom. And some, some translation read that as cultures, ethnos, culture shall rise against culture. So we definitely see a culture in our own nation, but I can tell you it's all over the world. Wherever you go in the nations, you'll find cultures raging against cultures. Some nations are in civil war. Some nations are in ethnic cleansing. Some nations are fighting because of ideology, religious freedom, and so on. There's always a war of culture going on and has been from the time immemorial. But I want to talk about not just the clash of two kingdoms in terms of, you know, the, what's happening in the world, but the Bible explains the two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, He has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness, conveyed us, brought us into the kingdom of light, which is revelation we know to be His Son. We took us out of one thing to get us into the other. If, you're, if you got one foot in each one of those kingdoms, you're the most miserable person on the planet. It's better off to not to have known anything. Now hear me. It's better off to not have known anything than to live halfway in the, in the middle of that. Because the more you know, the more we're accountable, the more we're responsible <clears throat> for what God's saying and doing. So to know him means that I want to push away from the kingdom of darkness and press myself into the kingdom of God. Part of the clash of these two kingdoms is not just what's happening around outside that we see on the news and we know by geographical and geopolitical things, but there is a war going on in, inside of us. The clash of the two kingdoms not only is outside of us, but it's inside of us. And Romans talks about in Romans 8, uh, therefore there is no condemnation in Christ because you've left the carnal things of the flesh. There's no condemnation in Christ. 
but those who press in after him, and he then goes on to say, the carnal mind, the way the word is sarks, is translated as either the flesh or the thinking of for self, very self-centeredness at that point. So what he's saying is that the clash of two kingdoms is, is the mind of Christ versus us. Our will versus his will. Interesting enough that Jesus, when he is ready to completely give himself over to what was going to happen at crucifixion, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is translated, you know, we know the, the olive press. Adam failed in the Garden of, of uh, Eden, saying, by choosing his own will over what God told him not to do. Jesus, the second Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane, prays this prayer. Not my will, not my mindset, how I feel. And yet he was all God and yet all man, according to Philippians 2. So he was feeling the natural pain. He was feeling the oppressiveness of his culture and of his time. The Roman occupation was around him. The press of his disciples do something. Make something happen. You're the Messiah. We figured that out. Heal something. Do something. Do something with these Roman soldiers. Rise up and show us something. And yet Jesus chose to do what the Father said, which was nothing related to what they wanted him to do. In fact, he said in John 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this realm, or my servants would be fighting here. So when we find that our fight is only in this realm, we have our kingdom only here. We can tell what kingdom we're of by where our warfare is. Make sense? If my kingdom is not of there, that means the kingdom or the governing, basile is the term, the dominion of a king. The governing of a king, even inside of me, tells of what kingdom I'm at. Who sits on the throne of my own heart? Who sits on the throne of my own thinking? It's easy to justify how we want to think because the world has given us lots of narrative how to do that. Everybody's doing it, just do it. It's okay, it's not that big a deal. I'll repent tomorrow and everything will be fine. When it does that, it means that I really don't love him. I just love the idea of him. So when he's talking about the kingdom of God is experiencing violence. The word violence there, biazo, means a crowding uh, that this king is getting closer and closer and closer. And the closer he comes, the more he crowds out everything that's not of him. So it'd be as if you had a glass and had dirt in the bottom of it and you start pouring water in that, the more space that the water takes up, it starts crowding it out till eventually the water runs over, washes out the dirt, and there's nothing there but the water. In the same way that the king of glory, Psalms 24, lift up your gates, yo, you, you, and let the king of glory come in. He's wanting to come in to us personally to crowd out everything that's not of him, Everything that's carnal, that's what about me? How am I going to benefit? What's, what's good for me? How am I going to fit into this? What's my identity? What's my significance? Does people see me bigger than I really am? In other words, all of these things are carnal thinking. So he comes in and he wants to take over and fill the house in such a way, John 14, 2, my father's house, whose house we are, Hebrews 3. He comes in and he fills the house and he wants to fill up every room. That is the kingdom of God. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is not just one of these days we're going to go there in heaven. Although that's the kingdom of heaven, there is a place of his presence and glory that we can only imagine, and we have some description of it. 
But right now, he wants us to be the body of Christ and allow the head, the mind of Christ, come in and fill up his body. And fill up his body, his actions and behavior and all of those other things there. So when we talk about the clash of two kingdoms, I'm talking today not about the nations of the world coming together, but the first thing that you and I have to conquer is us. I've talked myself out of more stuff, talked myself into stuff, just talked myself. Yet the Bible says, bless the Lord, O my soul. In other words, you've got to talk to yourself. Soul, I tell you that you need to bless the Lord, though you don't feel like it. Then you've possessed your soul. The Bible says, most of the time we know what to do is right, but we choose not to do it or we find a reasoning for it, or we'll play it off and debate and pro and con. Pro and con's not in the Bible, it's good and evil, but it's not pro and con. To know to do good and do it not <clears throat> is con. So by that he's saying he wants to fill us so much that we're not doing trial and error and playing out the scenarios in our mind. Once we conquer the inside battle, then greater authority do we have to the outside enemy that happens to us. When Jesus was sending his disciples out, and he was sending them out two by two, and he said, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, cast demons out, and they had a level of success. There in Luke, they come back, and a man had a son who they could not cast the demons out, and Jesus went ahead and cast them out for him, and they were asking Jesus, why couldn't we do this? And he said, this kind, archelaos, meaning it's a rank, this kind comes out by prayer and fasting. <clears throat> Why do, we, why do we fast? Fasting is not to get God's attention and say, look what I'm doing for you. I gave up two Big Macs this week. I'm really doing something powerful here. I got greater authority now. Give up the rest of the French fries and the rest of them and see what that was. The reason we fast is to weaken our own sensitivity to self and self-centeredism Sometimes you have to deny the flesh or denying your own self-will. That is the biggest fasting. Yes. Some of it's, easy, it's easier to give up that hamburger than it is to give up me. Yeah. I am crucified with Christ, <clears throat> with the anointed one, nevertheless I live. Well, I like the idea of being crucified with him because he's already done it, but I don't like getting on there with him, identifying with him. So therefore the battle becomes very confusing. Confusion, the Bible says where confusion is, there's every evil work. It's not a difficult, hard thing where there's confusion means there's an evil work happening there and it's not the right kingdom. The kingdom of God is not one of confusion, but it's of peace. So we see the clash between, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his dear son. That's what I want us to look at this morning. There is, I took it in a few weeks ago, there's language that operates in the kingdom of darkness, and that language is usually accusation, lies, offenses, uh, doubt, unbelief, all of, all, of those, all of those things cause disruption. And the kingdom of God, his language is righteousness, peace, and joy. So we understand that Whichever the, the language of the, of the two kingdoms is the kingdom that we're finding rule, take rulership with us. The simplicity of the kingdom means 
Who actually really rules me other than your spouse? Everybody is about two sentences behind. I think just catch them. I'll slow down a little bit. Who really rules you? I need to get my Texas accent back. So when we look at whoever rules us, it means that I'm feeding one of those two realms. Whichever I feed the most becomes the stronger of the two. Whichever one I'm feeding, I have either the greatest liberty in. Can we have liberty in the kingdom of darkness? I no longer feel conviction by the Spirit of God. Now in darkness, I feel fine with it. Or the liberty in the kingdom of God is that I have freedom from that. It's not even an issue anymore. Whatever I feed and give myself to means that what I allow to rule me. I don't want to be one where it just happens on Sunday morning when I step up on the platform that, oh, Jesus, the king of my heart. And then the rest of the world, it's whoever, whatever, however, and it comes. I would be like a fickle lover who's in love with whoever I'm at with at the time. That would be, you know, fornication, spiritual fornication, nothing else. He's coming after a bride that is so focused and attentive on him that she's not going after other lovers, including herself. All right. Look with me, if you would, to Romans, the 14th chapter, verse 17. I shortened my introduction a little bit. Romans 14, 17, and I want us to look at describing the kingdom of God. I'll spend more time talking about the kingdom of God and the power that is in the kingdom of God. Pick it up verse 14. I know I'm convinced, as Paul's saying, by the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself. He's talking about food, and they were making this big issue, whether to eat meat, drink, drink this, don't eat that. And, and they were just causing confusion. And Paul comes in to tell them of the bigger matters at hand. If your brothers grieve because of your food, <clears throat> excuse me, because they were eating food that was offered to idols and very pagan, pagan sacrifices, do not destroy your brother with the food or with one uh, from the, your food, the one who, for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom, the basileia, the governing power of the Lord. The governing power of the Holy Spirit. The governing power of the Holy Spirit. So he said the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those three things. The kingdom of God is in right standing with him. He's paid the price. So he said, I want to bring you next to me. The kingdom of God is not being far off, but it's being close to him. And then he said, peace. Jesus said, a peace I give you, not as the world gives you, but I give you not by the standard of what the world says about peace, but I give you peace based upon So the kingdom of peace and then joy, which I talked about last week, joy is not an emotion, 
It's nothing to do with happiness. Happiness is based on the outer, external, what's happening. Joy is an anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Messianic prophecy concerning Jesus comes out of Psalms 45, and he's saying to, this is God speaking back to his son, because you've hated iniquity and loved righteousness, therefore I'm anointing you with the oil of joy or gladness, same word, with the oil of joy above your fellows. I'm ex extending you out beyond that. So he tells us the joy is an anointing. It is the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Many years ago, I was in Mexico and I was doing a conference in, and uh, where, where Pastor Frankie has come from in Cuernavaca. And uh, I was on a high platform and then they have a lower platform below that. So in the evening you teach here, you preach here, and then you teach down at the lower platform. I didn't get that, but anyway, that's where they did. I was just opening up the meeting and had my translator with them, and a young man just jumped up out of the audience. He looked like he may be 12, 13 years old, ran up to the platform, screaming in perfect English at me, I've come to kill you, and I'm going to pull your eyes out, and you must leave this place now. And he jumped up on the platform right there, and I was about as much higher than him. Translator looked at me and like, did you hear that? Yeah, I mean, I do know English. <laughs> and all of a sudden, laughter fell over me. And I just started laughing at him. I said, you're such a little devil. You have no dominion and power to either bring me or send me out of here. But I've come to send you out of here and you leave this territory right now in the name of Jesus by the blood of the Lamb. You're destroyed. Leave this boy. Nobody was behind him. It looked like somebody picked him up under the armpit and flipped him backwards and he landed about three feet off this platform and landed out on the floor. And they're used to seeing this kind of stuff happen there. Two guys grabbed him, one on each foot, and dragged him out the side door. Translator looked at me and said, you okay? I said, I'm fine. I'm perfectly fine. I'm enjoying this. <clears throat> the spirit of joy hit that place unbelievably. Laughter began to break out. Joy began to break out. And if there was a demon around there, it just has to leave because according to what Psalm says, he that sits in the heavens laughs. And it literally destroyed the intimidation and the terror and the fear that tries to bring at us. <clears throat> Part of the anointing of Jesus is the joy of the Lord. It doesn't matter what's happening to you, around you, circumstantially. I'm not happy. Well, get over it. He'll, it'll all change tomorrow anyway. Just catch a new wave. Because joy is something that happens inside of us, not what's happening around us. I would rather go to my grave in great joy than to live miserably in this world, hoping for something to happen. Because the joy of the Lord is in the internal, the word kara, means the internal gladness of one that you love. It's like a lover saying, because I love them, it doesn't matter what's going on around. Our heart is twined to each other. That's the joy of the Lord. You can tell if, the, if you're, we're in joy by circumstances. I read last week, and it's in John 15. He see to it that no one takes your joy. No one can take your joy, but we can sure give it up. Because the joy is one of the weapons and the anointings of the Holy Spirit. He's placed inside of us. And the devil hates joy. Because he can't get a word in edgewise. It's like fingernails on a blackboard. Ah! Oh, they're hot. they got joy. You gotta leave. Because it is the coming in the opposite spirit. 
I've seen more people set free and delivered in a spirit of joy than people sitting there hollering and screaming, calling the devil a liar. He knows he's a liar. But when we start declaring who Jesus is, uh-oh, it's over then. It's all over then because the joy of the Lord strengthens us from the inside out and pushes out and crowds out anything that's in there so there's nothing in agreement. Jesus goes on to say in John the 14th chapter, he said, the prince of this world comes, but he will find nothing in me. What a powerful statement. And he proved that in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Roman soldiers came in and, and Jesus said, who are you looking for? And he said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. <clears throat> I am. I am that I am. I am he. And they fell down three times. The same thing happened. Finally, Jesus had to let him take him because there was nothing resonated or an agreement with them so they couldn't take him. The devil looks for a point of resonation or agreement inside of us so he can capture our thoughts, capture our feelings, capture our emotions, and just start rubbing in, working at it. So the battle is on the inside of us. Once you gain that battle, then you have a greater authority on the things around you. If we can't win the battle inside, we're, we're going to be defeated on everything outside. So when we see that he's saying, I've anointed you with the oil of joy, and Jesus said, have I given this? So Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will take of mine joy, and he will give it to you. Joy is a transferred, imparted anointing of the Holy Spirit that is resident inside of us, but rarely allows to be manifested because we see it as an emotion instead of seeing Jesus sitting on the throne of God. The prophet and his servant comes out. Servant gets the first glance at the hills, and wow. I think it was the Armenians that they were just filled, the hills were just full of them, just full of the enemy. The prophet comes out, and the servant starts telling him, Oh man, it's not a good day. <clears throat> and the prophet says, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. Joy gives us a perception of seeing what God sees. Fear gives us perception of what the enemy wants us to see. So when, you, when the enemy comes in, ha, raise a standard. The Lord God sits on his throne and he just pushes back with joy. He pushes back joy unspeakable and full of joy. Psalm 16, at his, in his presence is fullness. Playroom means you can't get any more in. Fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. The church needs to start enjoying the pleasures of the body of, of Jesus, not the pleasures of the world, but enjoying Jesus. Is he not enough? And delight yourself in him and he'll give you the desires of your heart. But when you try to get your desires fulfilled outside of Jesus, it's going to be just a mad mess and, and, and nothing works out. So he come to him submit ourselves to him and he raises up and he places inside of us his desire, his delight and the joy of the Lord becomes repellent to the enemy. The kingdom of God, the governing part of God is the anointing of joy, peace and righteousness. You can tell what we're, what we're being ruled by. Am I in righteousness? Well, I theologically, yeah. Peace, am I in peace? Well, do I have it? Well, I, I'm disturbed about a lot of things. Then just get your eyes centered on Jesus because there'll always be something to be unpeaceful about. There'll always be somebody to report to you how bad things are. 
But when you're seated with Jesus in heavenly places, you see his perspective and then joy starts welling up inside of you. And joy is the most powerful weapon because out of joy is connected to his word, the sword of the Lord, the spirit of God, because joy is connected to his word. He sent his word and healed them. That's a, that's a powerful statement of joy right there. All right, look with me, Isaiah, the 12th chapter. Isaiah speaks more of joy than any other, any other book in the Bible has spoken over 70, 70 sometimes, just using that word. This is, he's talking about, this is the prophet re, prophesying concerning the restoration of Israel that had gone away from God and God's redemptive bringing them back into that. Verse, verse, pick it up verse one. In that day you will say, I'm at, this is a, actually a hymn of praise. Oh Lord, I praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger has been turned away and you have now comforted me. Behold, God is my salvation. Hang on to that word. I will trust and not be afraid. And Yah, Yahweh, Yah the Lord is my strength and song. There's always a song with joy. And I don't mean a song that's written on a screen, but it's just this, this spiritual declaration of praise before the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song. We know what the old song is. Nothing ever happens to me. Everything's against me. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares. On and on. I mean, the country and western charts are full of that. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Where naos means a song that has never been written, but he has placed it in you. <clears throat> because your song is an offensive weapon against the enemy. As in the case with when he put out Je the singers before Jehoshaphat, just to sing and thank and worship the Lord, and then God set ambushments. So there's times when he says, I'll fight the enemy if you'll just let the song be released. We're trying to fight an enemy, and yet there's no song of joy there. Listen to the rest of this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Therefore, with joy you will draw water, hang on to that word, with joy... That, that inner gladness, anointing, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Wells means depth. Water means the word of the Lord. And so when you talk about with joy, you'll draw from the wells of salvation. If your salvation doesn't have joy in it, I wonder what well we're drinking from. Well, I just got to live this down. You know, I just got to bite, bite the bullet and do it. There ought to be a joy in salvation. <clears throat> Saved, healed, and delivered. Sozo is the word there. So with joy, I am drawing. I'm reaching because of he saved me. And I ought to be glad about that. Heal, he healed me. Of all the times he's healed me, all the times he delivered me, I'm drawing from the wells of Emmanuel. So, so with joy, they would bring these up. So even healing has a point of saying, Lord, I delight in you and I know my joy is set on you that you will heal me and you'll deliver me. You'll not forsake me. You'll not abandon me. But my joy is set on you, not on the problem, not on the sickness, not on the disease, what, what somebody did or didn't do. My joy is set on you. I can't control what someone says to me or does to me. I can control what I allow it to happen to me and what it does to me. Joy means 
I will not allow that to enter in because it oppresses and depresses and God didn't say it. But joy says, but I know what he said. I'm drawing from the wells of salvation. That's the battle right there, continually pulling from the word of God. Now we know that part of the wells is water. There is related to washing of the water of the word. So with the word, I'm using the word and pulling the word up into my spirit and releasing it against the powers of darkness in the enemy. That means I'm allowing Jesus to rule and reign in my life instead of what somebody comes along and says, I think you're ugly. Well, I'm made in the image of God, so you're, you have to talk to God about that. Well, I don't like you. You won't be the first. You won't be the last. When you let it enter in and start festering inside of you, it pushes joy out the side, and the lie now becomes centered and seated there. And if you gossip and you share something else about somebody else that makes them look bad, you are part of the seating in the wrong kingdom. Come on. I'll talk to this group over here. They haven't said much yet. I not turned my back on you. <clears throat> so if we're seated in the kingdom that has power and authority, which is the oil of joy, that means that I need to understand salvation and just wait until I get to heaven. Salvation is an everyday experience and encounter with the Lord. I'm looking for a place of salvation. I'm looking for places of deliverance. I'm looking for places for healing. I'm looking for places to work out my salvation or let salvation work out through us to save, heal, and deliver other people. So if the joy of the Lord's there, then that means I'm looking for places to pour out to him. Now here's, here's an interesting thought on this. Most of the time we wait, God, if you'll heal me, you make me happy, help me to get through this crisis, change, change everything and everybody else around me, then I'll be able to do this. No, we have to conquer where we are before anything changes that point. He gives us the enemy we need to deliver us and bring strength to us. When Israel or the Hebrews came out of Egypt, he took them, didn't take them the shortcut, he took them the long way around because they had not learned to fight yet. He allowed them to encounter the enemy at the level that they needed to experience to gain some spiritual strength. So when we go through things, though God doesn't necessarily cause it to us, he sure knows how to use it to strengthen us in the midst of it. So therefore we understand what really warfare is. It's learning to live out and walk out exactly what we're talking about now. I will not let the enemy steal my joy. I will not let somebody say something, do something that they may not even mean that way. And let my mind start racing. The devil loves to inject the narrative into thoughts. Did God really say? Yep, that's exactly what he did in the very beginning. Look at this. Draw well, we'll draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day, when you do, when you draw water, the joy of the Lord from the wells, the depths of God, we will change the conversation from, oh, woe is me, look how bad it is, to praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the people, not the deeds of the enemy, but the deeds of the Lord. We've got a whole book here of the deeds of the Lord. 
We've got a lot of history with everything that God's done. Declaring his deeds among the people. Tell it to everybody. God is good. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord. Don't complain. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. When I complain to the Lord, I'm saying, you've not done a very good job of taking care of me. But when I sing to the Lord, it opens up the wells, opens up all that he is and all he does, and the attention becomes on the Lord, not on what hasn't happened. Disappointment means things didn't work out like I wanted them to. But when we have the appointment of the Lord, he's appointed us to harvest, he's appointed us as a worshiper, then I operate in the appointment of God, then the disappointments have become less and less. They don't make that much difference. The big foxes become little foxes until eventually they become ants. Sing the Lord for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out, shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. And that all happens by simply drawing from joy. It's easier said than done. It means you have to set your affection upon who he is and not upon all that's going on. The Bible says, tells us that the kingdom of God does not come by observation, for the kingdom of God is within. So in other words, and he's talking about the signs today, he said, the kingdom of God didn't come because you just happen to see the right signs. And historically, we've all heard teaching that, you know, it's going to be this year, this next month, and it's going to have, all these are going to have. He said, it doesn't come because the signs are there. It comes because the Father says it's time. But he says, the kingdom of God is, doesn't come by ob observing and there's a lot of observers in the world and in the body of Christ, but he said the kingdom of God is within you. So he's telling us straight up, I've come to set up a kingdom to rule inside of you, and I believe personally that when that kingdom becomes ruling inside of me, the signs outwardly become less important, although I can discern them better when he's the king of the, on my heart. When I'm the king on the heart, that I, I want the signs to line up how I want them to be, and I can sure make them to pull that way. But when he's the king of the heart, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter, Lord, as long as I have a relationship with you. Can't tell you how many times I've talked with people that lost their faith because they had their faith in the sign of something happening, and when it didn't happen, they lost their faith, usually in people, confidence in that. God's not called us to be predictors. He's called us to be lovers of his presence. And then out of that comes the simplicity of all the other things as well. He tells them all the way through, even in Matthew 24, the story of the parable of the virgin, Matthew 25. And he said, when the Lord of the house comes back, if he finds a servant still doing what he was called to do and taking care of his oversight and over, over the people and feeding everybody. But he said, the one who starts, he thinks that the Lord of the householder is delaying, he starts beating the servants into submission and beating them, being mean to them. He said, that's when the, the owner of the house will come back and will divide him in two. So what he's saying is being faithful at all times, at all seasons, no matter what the signs are saying, it's the issue and the rulership of the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
Proverbs says that out of the heart comes the issues of life, meaning the behavior or the track that we're going to travel on, out of the heart sets the course of where my destiny is heading. So if I don't like the where I'm going, I've got to change my heart because the heart is the GPS for what I'm setting up to do and go. Look with me in Isaiah 26, while we're still in the neighborhood. Verse 1, in that day, talking about the song of salvation returning, in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. When they were saying this, it didn't look so good. God always gives us a song of deliverance ahead before we get into it. He always preps us for the battle to come so that when we step into it, we've already declared a proceeding word so that it becomes a catalyst that we can just walk right on through it. This song is going to be sung. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon the Lord. Now, he begins to, to talk about Psalms 126, when the captives returned to the Lord, I love this part, brought out of Babylon, they were taken captive in 70 AD, when they were brought out of Babylon, we were like those who dream. Dreaming, the ability to see we have a hope and a future, we were like them that dream, then was our, our mouths filled with laughter and our tongues with singing. Part of the preemptive thing that God wants to put within you and I is the song of the Lord that says, be exalted, O Lord God. Even in the midst of the chaos at the moment, anybody can report conditions, but it takes someone that has the faith, a relationship, and the heart of God to speak it in the midst of the enemy. You crazy? Sing unto the Lord a new song. You should be singing, oh, woe is me. No, I'm declaring who he is because he goes before me. He makes the way straight. But if I never release that preemptive, I'm going to get stuck where I'm at and keep cycling through the same old, same old, same old. Why does this always happen to me? Because out of the issue of the heart comes the complaining and anger, hostility. The enemy has some cousins these demons are cousins. Doubt, unbelief, unforgiveness, offenses, critical, criticism, all of these are cousins to the enemy. I don't mean to be critical, but let me just say. We've, we've all done that, haven't you? I don't mean to be gossiping, but I just need to say. It means I'm sitting on another throne on the seat of the scornful. The power of the Holy Spirit is released when we're in agreement with him. Look at this. Our mouths was filled with laughter and we said among 
the nations how good, how great God is. The power of the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes through joy and he wants to fill our mouths. He went into John the seventh chapter in verses, verses 30 says that out of your innermost being will flow rivers, plural, where's potamos, meaning it's pure enough you can drink from. Out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water because the wells of salvation are there and salvation is connected with the joy of the Lord. And the power of the gospel of the kingdom of God is related to your salvation. The enemy is defeated because of salvation. The enemy is thwarted and pushed back because of salvation. So when you delight yourself in your own salvation, the enemy knows it, that he can't dissect and push it away. And circumstances do not dictate to whether you're the salvation, resurrection destroyed the works of the enemy. And so at that point, he's saying, just live it up. Delight yourself in the Lord. When the enemy comes in, just have a party. He wants to come and distract you and say, look how bad things are. Don't you know how bad it is? When you know the end from the beginning, you will delight in what you see. And we know the end of the book. When Lazarus was, was sick, they came to Jesus and said, the one you love, he's sick. Jesus said, I'll come. Jesus was so moved that he waited, what, another four days. He comes in, Lazarus is dead. They're a little nifty at Jesus at this point because they said to him, they were all weeping. Jesus, if you had been here at the right time, Lazarus would have lived. We're blaming you actually for him being dead. And they were so stricken with grief, Jesus says, take me where he is. Oh, he wants to go to the grave. He wants to honor Lazarus. Jesus didn't want to go hang out there and cry and weep. He wanted to do something and change it because salvation was present. He had a harder time getting them to remove the stone than he did bringing Lazarus out of the tomb because of the cousins of doubt and unbelief. They had known Jesus to be the healer, but they did not see him as the power of resurrection. How we view him sets up a tone for the joy on our heart. I know one of these days he's going to take us all to heaven, and so I'm just kind of waiting and hanging out here until all happens, and until that time is I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not a lover. I'm on the lover of self. But when you love him full time, you have his fullness. I love this part. In Genesis, excuse me, back to Isaiah 35 before you leave that neighborhood. Isaiah 35. Verse 10. But the redeemed of the Lord, the redeemed of the Lord, they're going to say something. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return, verse 10, and come to Zion, that's the hill of the Lord, with singing. You come to the mountain of Zion, the hill of the Lord, where eventually that he will rule and reign the nations from there. Set up his throne there. That he'll rule the nations there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting what? Grief. Grief is the, the antithesis, the, the anonym of joy. 
Joy comes in the morning. Grief has a, has a moment in time, but there comes a point that has to be transferred into joy. Otherwise, grief gets us stuck at another throne and becomes empowering there. The redeemed shall walk, shall walk there. The ransom of the Lord shall return, come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. In the Old Testament, when they anointed people, where did they anoint them? On their head. There's going to be everlasting joy on their head. It's not their big toe. It's their head that needs anointing. It's our mind that needs the anointing. It's our mind that needs the breakthrough. It's our mind that needs to be submitted under the mind of Christ. Because the clash of the two kingdoms is the soul versus the spirit. Those that are led by the spirit are sons of God. So the, the clash between the soul and the spirit is always the battle of the mind. We all know that. All right, look at the rest of this. You can come to Zion, joy is going to be on their head. They shall obtain joy, second time. Joy is going to be on their head. They shall obtain joy and gladness. That word translated there means not only shall joy be on their head, but now obtained where it will now become who they are. They obtain it. They own it. It will not come and go. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon them as they did in times of certain warriors and powers anointing come upon them and then live. In the New Testament, Jesus said, I'll not leave you. And if he's the joy maker, joy on him, that's part of the heritage, the inheritance that we get from him, then that means it's that I'm not going to take my joy from you, but we have to choose whether we allow joy to rise up within us. Because misery loves company, and some people find it easier to be in agreement with misery than to be in agreement with joy. Because joy pushes back on that. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. How many have just found yourself just going around, uh, uh, hoping that somebody will ask you, is something wrong? Uh, uh. I'm telling you that sighing is an evidence to the enemy. Hey, hey, over here. I'm, I'm, I'm right for the pickings. Tell me something so I'll feel miserable. Anoint me with your misery. That sighing and sorrow, which is the opposite of joy, shall flee away. And don't let it back in the door. You have to fight for joy inside of your heart and your mind every day. We're in a world right now that loves to steal your joy. And part of the tactic of the enemy is to steal joy from you so you'll be submitted to how they feel. The world's falling apart. The world's going this way. The world's gone mad. And there's, there's truth and element to that. But be of good cheer. The truth that you that changes you is the truth that you apply, not the truth you repeat. It's the behavior of truth that changes everything at that point. Genesis 26, a very interesting truth here. Abraham had been given a promise by God and a, and a huge inheritance. And living in the desert, if you had access to water, you were considered to be wealthy. The story here is that Abraham had, had wells in different places 
and was given as the inheritance to his sons. You can find in, in Genesis 26 and verse 12 that Isaac sowed in famine, which nobody would do normally, sowed in the land and reaped a, in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Now move on down to verse 17 and see the progression. Isaac departed there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham. They were not new wells. They were wells that had been shut down. And why? They'd been dug in the days of his father Abraham, meaning it's his inheritance. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. In other words, he, the wells were there that the Philistines, which were half-breed demonic Nephilim, which means they were fallen angels, demons, came down, had, had sex with women, natural women, and somehow or another had these giants, sons of Anak, to call Philistines. One translates Philistines means to wallow in self-pity based upon numbers where the spies went in the land and made them feel like grasshoppers in their own eyes. So you have these half-breed demonic figures come in and stopped up the well from the man who had promise with God. Though Abraham had promised, every generation has to fight to contend for those promises. The promises of the Lord are yes and amen, but you've got to fight for the promises that God gave one generation. It just can't be because granny had this promise. You've got to fight for it the same way that she did, and you contend for those wells. Because a well spoke of life, and it spoke of even prosperity. So when we talk about the wells of salvation, in the same ways, we have to contend and fight that righteousness, peace, and joy is going to be part of our lifestyle and our conversation. And worship and honoring the Lord is the power of the Holy Spirit in us, honoring the Lord, and thus joy comes, flows out of us. All right, look at this. Interesting. He comes and digs the wells that these half-breed demons have stopped up. He called them by the names which his father had called them. And also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well running water. But the herdsmen of Gerar, which was those in the local area, they started arguing with Isaac's herdsmen saying, the water is ours. In other words, we, that is our water, even though he had heritage to it. How interesting we give up so easily when God said, this is what I've given you, but then we just, oh, I guess it wasn't meant to be. Anything that God gives you and you fight to contend for it by the promises that you've had, it becomes, you become a, a stronger owner than the previous generation. Become stronger ahead. Well, I pray for my children, but they're going the opposite direction. My children should be taught of the Lord, but it sure doesn't look like it. Then you contend and you stand for it. Those children God has given me in my, in my heart, my uh, loins, wounds, wounds and loins, and so by that, I stand that my children will be taught of the Lord and you contend for the well that God has given you and don't back up and write it off. It's easy to write something off because it's emotionally resistant to us. I don't care anymore. I don't want to feel anymore. But God said, it is your promise of salvation that my whole household will be saved. Though on the natural instincts of it, it doesn't look like that, but I contend what God said not what the enemy's trying to tell me. All right, look at this. He's fighting with these herdsmen. So he called the name of the well Esek, which means contention. So you have this well of contention. 
Then he dug another well, and they quarreled over that one as well. And they called that name Sitna, which is translated hatred. So I just keep digging, and they just comes up contending and hatred till eventually you want to say, what is the use? Part of the tactic of the enemy, according to Daniel, around the seventh chapter, he wants to wear down the saints so we'll give up contending with what God has promised us. We're seeing some things begin to even turn because there's been some intercessors and people that have contended for what God said belongs to him. We're beginning to see even abortion turn, at least in Texas, and things beginning to turn because the intercessors have stood up and saying, that's our well. That's our posterity. That's the kingdom of God. We stand on that ground and we call it holy ground and we say we'll not be defeated and we'll not back off and we'll not give up that ground. <coughs> I will draw water from the well that God has given me. The enemy wants to defeat you, but your language betrays us. You would, what kind of language we're using says what kingdom that we're ruling in. Well, I guess it's not going to happen. Oh, well, you know, I'll just kick that over and move on somewhere else. And, have, you know, why not have a breakthrough for once? <clears throat> why not break through the ranks of the enemy instead of just rolling over and playing dead and taking the easy way out? I was telling someone the other day, and I said, it seems like most of my life, everything I've done, I've done it the hard way. But I, I think I feel like the Lord led me to it. That's why that I've seen so many demons just thrown out and cast out, not because I believe in the theology. I've been there and seen them. They've talked to me, ugly things. And I don't care if they're legion or how many. Why, why, why talk to them? Because they're liars. They're not going to tell you the truth. What's your name, lying spirit? But one thing is for sure. The Lord has already paid the price and it's in you, and the well is inside of you, and when it bubbles up inside of you with joy, then it's game over, and they know it. All right. Look at this. He moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. He would not give up. He would not stop digging. So he called us named Rehoboth because he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. He found the well Rehoboth, meaning room. There's something that God loves about people that will not give up. They have the tenacity to stay with it and not give up and not back away. There may be history still to be written in front of us when we have to break through, but that's a history that God wants us to write, that the power that of the Spirit of God can't be taken from us instead of giving up and backing away. I can tell you over the years, been here 34 years, we've started this church, very few, Sammy and Sherry went around, first Janice and Jerry, few of the few around here. I look back in those days and I thought, God, I don't know how I stood. And the only reason that I know that I stood, even when I was called everything, even a heretic, I, called, I was called a liar, I mean, I was called you name it and son, Everything said wasn't going to happen, it's going to fail, it's going to fail, you know, all of these. One man, one Sunday morning said, hey, I need to see you, and <clears throat> pulled up and picked up, and I knew him, 
So I get in the pickup with him. We drove out in the woods, and he's the one to fight. I, and I had a nice suit. And he said, one of us is going to leave here, and one of us is not. Oh, God, I didn't sign off for this. But every time I thought, I don't know how I stood it, and this is what the Lord said, because you, I gave you no other options. When you don't have any other options, it is like Ruth saying, I can go back to my family, but there's nothing back there. And she said, your people will be my people. Live or die, you're my, my people are your people. And God was setting her up. She became the lineage who Christ would come through and aligned her in such a way, set her at the right feet of um, Boaz. Thank you. And right at the feet of Boaz and put a skirt over her. If she'd gone back to her own family and took the easy way out, she would have not been set up and the, uh, the, the th red thread of the anointed Christ come through her. God sets us up for big things that we don't bail out too early. We tend to abort the seed before we see the breakthrough because it's easier to do it or easier to point the finger. I had people pointing a finger at me and never preached one message in their life and was telling me what I should be doing. Maybe they were right. I didn't know what I was doing half the time. All I knew, I just had to pray over everything. God, I don't know what I'm doing. I still pray that God, I don't know what I'm doing. I just suit up and show up and believe that somehow or another he can make something out. Because I don't have a big estimation of myself. I just got a bigger estimation of who he is. I stand before the Lord. It's not, it's not nickels, noses, and numbers. It's have you been faithful with the heavenly vision I've called you to. And I don't want to leave anything there and say I backed off, traded something, traded this for that, and traded you know, flesh for spirit and all that kind of thing. If your heart is set on him, he will make a way where there seems to be no way. Look at that. Let me finish up with this in Nehemiah, the sixth chapter. Best wine until last. Nehemiah, the sixth chapter, all the way through the book of Nehemiah, I think is a great story for the time we're living in. You know the history that Nehemiah actually was a cupbearer when the Persians kings. Makes really what he was, he's the wine taster. So nobody would kill him. He'd taste the wine first, and if he didn't drop dead, then he, he could drink it. It was considered a very high honor to be a cupbearer. I think we can make that same statement for us. It is a high honor for us to be a cupbearer for the king of glory. Not to keep him from taking some bad wine, but we get a chance to taste first what he's ready to pour out. If you've ever been over in France, Diane and I had the privilege of going and eating at an a older French lady in the church where he was ministering to, I think it was Grenoble, I believe, somewhere in there. And uh, I didn't know what a French meal looked like. Pastor stopped and got a piece of bread that was a stick of about four feet long. It went all the way across the car. We're holding this thing. I mean, I've seen subs, but not, nothing like this. <clears throat> this is a torpedo sub. 
This little lady met us at the door, gave us a little thing like a communion cup, and she said, drink this. We drank it like cough syrup. And I, what in the world is that? They were not drinkers. And so the pastor said, this is to cleanse your palate for what you're getting ready to taste. We'd sit down and have eat, you know, and I thought, man, that's good. I'm full of salad. I'm full. Little did we know that there was about six more courses coming after that. At each one, they give you that little whatever it is there to cleanse your palate because they wanted you to taste what the next thing is to be. Interesting note that Psalms 34 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But if you got a bad taste in your mouth from something of the last season or what happened to you and you've been stuck around with that bad taste, when the Lord does something good, you can't taste it. I don't get it. I don't see it. All I remember is I got hurt in church one time and I've been mad ever since. And it's been a great excuse. It works for me all the time. But when you get a taste of the presence of God in such a way and clears your palate, and Hebrews 12 says, beware that a root of bitterness, bitter root doesn't spring up and begins to defile everybody around you. Because not as it just so much for us to be bitter, but it affects everybody else that we're around us. Misery loves company. If you love me, you'll be as mad about it as I am. If you love me, you'll be as offended as I am. So here, let me give you some. Wear my yoke. So when we get your palate ta- released and cleansed, you begin to have a taste for the things of the Spirit of God, and you'll never go back to a lesser thing. The world has no taste at all once you've had your mouth cleansed. You can tell people that say, pardon my French, and they're... The French, I'm sure, love that expression. And this let a sling of stuff come out of their mind as if to say it's okay. It means that they've got a taste of something of this world and they need to get it cleansed so they can get a taste from God. I got a pop-up that came to phone a couple of days ago and and it was from a church ad and it said, Come to the church, we'll show you first time run movies, Sunday morning, first time run movies, and we will have popcorn and all the soda you can drink. So I thought, oh, it must be for a special night or something. No, Sunday morning. And come experience the new church trend. Must be some powerful popcorn, that's all I'd say. When you get a taste of the sweet presence of Jesus, there's no popcorn in this world. Orville Redenbacher and all of his, his best experiences can't outdo of tasting and experiencing who he is. And when the world tries to give you a bad taste, you begin to recognize that's not the taste of my Lord. I've got to jump into this quick. All right. Nehemiah is coming back to help rebuild the walls. Ezra's, Ezra's been reading the law. Ezra and Nehemiah is working together. Ezra's a prophet. Verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, when, when it happens, Sanballat, and these, they have special names. They're, they're not Jews. They're just, they're just part of the ites left over the Canaan region. 
Sanballat, who's not a good guy, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there was no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors. It upsets the enemy when there's no more breachers in your life. I did not said breaches, I said breaches. When they had sealed up all the divisions and no more breaks in the ranks, the enemy gets stirred up. So he sent out messengers to them and saying to, to Nehemiah, I, uh, and saying to them, I want you to come and let us meet among the villages and the plain of Ono. If you don't want to go somewhere, it says Ono. Meet us in Ono, but they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying, and you ought to write this down and keep it in your logbook. I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down off the wall. Why should the work cease while I leave and go down to you? Why am I going down to something demonic and debate over something that takes me away from the true kingdom of God? Well, what about this dot? And what about this little jot? And what about this tittle? Should we be baptizing face down, sideways, front ways, sideways? Should we be baptizing this way or that way? Should we be baptizing in a river and not a baptistry? That's sacrilegious. So how, you know, so we come down off the wall and let's, let's debate and talk about this stuff. This is exactly what the enemy wants to do is to distract, disgrace, and bring shame. To keep you from finishing what God's called you to do. You're a finisher. You're a finisher. Jesus is a finisher. David was a finisher. David just didn't knock out Goliath. He cut his head off. Most scholars believe that all David, when David knocked him out, he was, he was unconscious. So when he took his own sword and severed the headship off of his shoulders, then it was finished. We need to finish some stuff and not just believe for a knockout. I'm not going to come down off the wall and, and Sanballat, verse 5, Sanballat sent a servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, so everybody knew it's an open letter, it report among the nations, and Gisham says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported back to the king, Persian, where you came from. So come together, let us forth for and consult. So now he is threatening him. If you do not come down and let us debate, I am going to tear you up and I'm going to lie about you. <clears throat> Notice they get a little stronger, a little stronger. All right. I love what he says to him. Then I sent back to him saying, no such things as you are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God... So he now comes and appeals to God. Therefore, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Afterward, I came to the house of Shema and the son of Deliah, which could be back in one of those guys, those not a good guy, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. And let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. And indeed, at night, they will come and kill you. So now they've stepped up to where there's an assassination plot against you, Nehemiah. You need to get inside the temple, shut the gates, and, and hide out. Sound like a plan, man. And I said, should such a man as I flee 
And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Hired prophets. They're all over the place. We'll prophesy for a hundred bucks. It's on the internet. You can pull it up. Somebody told me and I saw that. $25, you get a, a novice. For $50, you get someone that's gone through a course. For a hundred bucks, you've got somebody who, can, who has prophesied before. 1-800, tell me what Jesus says. You think I'm kidding? It's all over there. He hired them <clears throat> to say what he wanted them to say. For this reason he was hired that I should be afraid, notice that the tactic of the enemy, and that, that act way of sin so that they might have cause for an evil report, trying to give accusation, that they might reproach me. And then he says, my God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works and the prophets as Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. In other words, he says, I'm just turning you on to you, God. You remember them. I'm not going to even think about them. I don't have time to go into be find that Sanballat and Tobiah, they were also in charge of the treasury of the temple. So they were in charge of not allowing sacrifices, which was the whole point of rebuilding to restore worship back in, that, in, in Jerusalem. And they wouldn't want it to happen because they would lose control and lose power. Once God now being on the throne, worship. Verse 15, so the wall was finished 25th day of Elu in 52 days and it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work had been done by our God. Verse 18, there was many of the nobles even in Judah sent letters to Dubai and the letters to Dubai came to them and many in Judah were or had pledged, these are Jews, had pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of some Shechanah, the son of Era, some, some guy that's clout, and because of they pledged letters to them, also they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tob Tobias sent letters to frighten me. When you're a cupbearer of the Lord and you're carrying something so close to him, protecting his honor, protecting the glory of the king, the honor of the king, then the enemy is going to say every kind of threat, everything against you, name all kinds of things. They go on to say, you know, the work you're doing is so shoddy. If a little fox runs on the wall, it's going to fall down. Anything to intimidate and bring them to an end. Now look at, and I'm done with this, Nehemiah, the next chapter, verse 8, chapter 8. <clears throat> verse 8. Ezra begins to read the law, restoring the word of the Lord back to them. And they gave the sense in that God was helping them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, which was the part that was the main part of the sacrifice, the fat. How many has been saying, I've been trying to give it to God ever since. <clears throat> and take it. Eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to them for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our God. 
Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites quieted the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. The people went their way to eat and drinks and portions to rejoice greatly because they understood the word of the Lord declared. In 1987, before we started here, one day I was just with the Lord, presence of God, and the Lord said this to me, gave me this scripture. And I wasn't even planning on ever pastoring again. Probably it was maybe 86 and we did start the church in 87. And I heard the Holy Spirit saying to me, I'm going to put you back in that position and one of the first things you will do is send portions to them that nothing has been prepared for. I want to raise something up that nobody is prepared for. <clears throat> out of that verse of scripture came love indeed, which we know today. Love indeed was started on day number one. Been giving out groceries and on Wednesday night in those days. It was out of this little room over here and clothes and all kinds of things. Now it's, you know, box trucks, loads, palletized. Pastor Jim gets food every week and, and ministry goes on, ministering to people in Spanish, English, all over the place. But he gave us this point, when you give portions to them that nothing has been prepared, you give them from my heart to them, I will cause your joy to be strong. And the word strength there is translated, not just the fact that I feel good, but to the point is I am mighty to resist his enemies. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So I want to suggest to you today that if you're in the middle of a battle of your life, the conditions and circumstances is not the issue. The issue is, am I in the joy of the Lord? Because his joy is in me. I remember singing in the 90s when, when during that renewal broke out, this joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. This joy I have, the world didn't give it to me. If the world didn't give it, then the world can't take it away. <clears throat> I could sing on a good day. Meaning the joy of the Lord came from him. It is a heritage that my father gave me that a treasure I hold inside. And only when I step into the world do I open the door and tell the enemy, you can come and steal the treasure. Stand with me, please. <clears throat> I want to pray over anyone this morning that you felt like you've lost that sense of joy. That I've lost my relationship with the Lord and I've sold out for something less than. I've drank another cup where I'm just trying to survive. He's not called us to just survive. He's called us to rise up above it and soar with him. I can tell you by descriptions of the word of God in the kingdom of heaven that there's no sorrow. In fact, he says, there's no more tears. He, washed, he wipes them away. There's a, this overwhelming sense of the joy. So when Jesus prayed this, gave this prayer to the disciples, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Your basilea, your dominion, and your rule come inside of you, live and dwell and exist inside of you. 
Not looking to see it coming in the clouds, but he's looking to see, is it inside of us? That's where we win the battle. When people see you have a breakthrough on the outside, it's because you've already won it on the inside. Your public breakthrough is because there was a private battle that went on and you broke through and the enemy has scattered. Let God arise, Psalm 68. Let the enemy be scattered. He said, I've given you the tools. Your warfare is not using carnal means. If you can think it about in your mind and come up with some little strategy in your mind, two plus two is four and we scatter the devil, it probably is not a great strategy. But when you allow the Spirit of the Lord just to rise up inside of you, it's a spontaneous combustion, <clears throat> the song of the Lord. Many shall see it and be glad. Many will see it and glorify the Lord. So God is, first of all, wanting to be glorified before we ever see our enemies fall. We want to see the enemy fall, but God's, first of all, first and foremost, to be glorified. If the enemy falls and God is not seen as the, the one glory and the lift of our head, then we haven't really had a, a win. We've just had a momentary brief release. So Father, I pray over us this morning that the joy of the Lord, our God. Some of you need to be repenting for trash-talking other people. Some of you just need to come before the Lord and saying, God, forgive me that my opinion has been risen up above you, above the knowledge of God. Therefore, I'm resisting you. Everybody he's created has spiritual DNA, whether they're walking with God or not. And he said, they belong to me. They don't belong to you. Therefore, you have no right to curse them. Because when you do that, then the curse comes back on you. So this morning, Father, we just lift our hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to come in. And just begin to move through every room, every thought, every recess, every attitude, every mindset, every self-justification that you never appointed nor gave to us. That we can be so right in our self-righteous that we miss your righteousness. We come and we bow before you, Lord. We bow our knee, we bow our heart. Say, God, deliver us from evil, deliver us no wonder the enemy could come and keep afflicting and afflicting and afflicting. It's because we've never fully submitted our mind to you. Would you come, Lord, and bring a, a fresh taste of the wine of the Spirit and refresh in our, our taste buds? I can tell you over many years I've had to come, and, come before the Lord and say, take this out of my mouth. Take this bitterness out of my mouth. Take this hurt out of my heart. God, only you can do it. I can't talk it out. I can't shove it out. I can't even will it out. But I can start by repenting it out and asking you, Jesus, to be Lord. Let the peace of God rule. Let his name be exalted. Allow Jehovah to set. Let him rise above your thoughts and declare his tensions for you that you'll see his goodness in the land of your life. Let him fulfill all longings 
Let him be the delight of your heart. Let him see you showing I'm pressing through, I'm breaking through. Let him recognize I'm a lover of yours, O oh Lord. Not part-time, not half-time, not when just things are going right, but at all times, at all seasons, your praise shall continually be in my mouth. We worship you and bless the Lord God of our salvation which was and is and is to come be glory and honor to your name there's none like you O Lord in all the earth there's none that can do what you do so we look to you Lord the beginning and the end and all in between touch us deep Touch us, Lord, with your fragrance, with your heart. Make us a sweet-smelling savor. <clears throat> Though the world may has things that stinks, but for you, I've marked you with a sweet-smelling savor for myself. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and the Lord be gracious to you. May he elevate you above all others because of the gladness upon your heart and life. May he train your heart to say what is on his heart and not what just repeating what the world says. Deliver us from being an echo of this world and bring us, O oh God, into being a prophetic voice of Jesus and his goodness and his favor. We praise you and give you thanks, O oh Lord, today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.